Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today we are going to talk about what is an existential threat and we have Phil Walter on the show today and Phil has served in the military, the intelligence community and the interagency and he's written this great article and the title is what is an existential threat. It was published in February on the 10th in Real Clear Defense and we're going to look at this article and kind of delve deeper into this topic, which is really interesting. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show, Phil. Uh, thank you so much for the uh, the opportunity, Chelsea. I really appreciate it. And why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves before we start talking about this topic? Okay. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have uh, served in the military, both uh, active duty and reserves, both as a enlisted and um, as an officer as well. And I later served uh, in the U.S. intelligence community and also did a tour in the interagency and have uh, been deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, and Horn of Africa. And um, kind of as my hobby, I, I write and I blog and I podcast, obviously. And you're on the Loopcast, so it's great to have you. Thank you so much. I've uh, I've enjoyed uh, listening to past episodes, and it was an honor to be asked to come on. Well, we're very honored to have you. So, to start off with, what is an existential threat? So it's it's interesting, you know, with the presidential elections thing going on, that people are throwing that that phrase around a lot. And through some interaction on Twitter, somebody said, you know, hey, why don't you why don't you write a blog on that? Because your tweets your tweets were pretty good. Why don't you actually make them a bit longer? So uh, Blake Byers, who works over at Real Clear Defense, was gracious enough to take my piece and hang it on Real Clear Defense. And uh, I kind of defined it as um, a group that has the capability to permanently change another group's values and the way it governs itself um, against that latter group's uh, will. So the latter group cannot resist um, having their value system and the way they govern permanently changed. And you just mentioned the 2016 run-up to this presidential elections that we're going to have soon, and it's it's all over the news, and we hear a lot of the thoughts and, and ideas going on in the debates, and we've heard, as you said, a lot about existential threats, and this term has dropped a lot. So why don't we look at that a bit? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. The... Um, from a political point of view, I I feel like you know the 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 candidates in order to get votes they have to prove to their prospective voting base that they are of value and uh, you know the best way to prove that you are of value is to show you know someone how you can help them how you can solve a problem and so when I see a lot of people uh, trying to hang the existential threat moniker on um. Uh, the Islamic Strait of Iraq and the Levant over in Iraq and Syria or um, other other things like that that, that truly kind of aren't. Um, I always wonder if it's, if it's I don't know whether it's um, ignorance, whether the, there's not good you know, national security people in the know who are hanging out with the candidates or whether um, they're just trying to, you know, obviously when we look at, you know, ISIL as a threat as compared to Russia as a threat. The uh, ISIL is more visible because it's in the news every day. 
whereas you know the threat posed by Russia, which is specifically you know kind of tied to their nuclear capability, um, that's not in the news every day. And so I don't know if it's more politically expedient to take something that's already in the news anyway, hang the existential threat moniker on it, and then pontificate about what your plans would be if you were elected president. Um, it's it's very strange to me. And as you mentioned, one of the topics that we hear this term dropped on a lot is ISIS-ISIL. And at the second Republican GOP, GOP excuse me, debate, Ben Carson was quoted saying about ISIS that we're talking about global jihadists who actually want to destroy us. They are an existential threat to our nation. What do you think about this? And looking at it in the terms of what you define an existential threat, how realistic is this to use this term for describing ISIS or ISIL? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting from a standpoint of when you quoted Mr. Carson when he said, you know, they want to destroy us. Well, you know, of course, you know, of course they want to, but, you know, desire does not equate to a threat. It is simply a desire. You know, they just because an organization has the desire to destroy or permanently change another, you know, another group, that does not mean they necessarily have the capability to do the same. So, you know, when you look at, you know, how is threat defined, you know, it's, you know, capability plus intent. And while, while, um, ISIL, you know, has capabilities and they both have, you know, so they have a certain type of capability internal to Iraq proper and internal to Syria proper. You know, the capabilities there are really focused on being able to hold key terrain and uh, disrupt the uh, ability of Iraq and Syria to uh, to effectively govern that territory. But then outside of um Outside of Iraq and Syria, you know, you have the kind of global, you know, uh, violent extremism, inspirational thing where you have groups from all over the world who are, you know, suddenly rebranding themselves as ISIL. They're going to take off their bad guy group X t-shirt and put on their ISIL t-shirt. Um, I, I enjoy the phrase um, opportunistic rebranding, which is used a lot um, in the uh, think tank circuit in D.C., I think that's pretty precise, but but despite the you know capabilities of ISIL proper in Syria and Iraq, and then the kind of global violent extremism thing that is outside of that area, you know, they may have a desire, they may want to be an existential threat to the U.S., but it, they're they're not. They're just not. You know, desire does not equal capability and just for our listeners when you google the debates going on and existential threat ben carson really favors this term because he's said a number of quotes that use that and most of them are attached to isis isil which is quite interesting especially with what you just said phil of the idea of that capability versus desire versus actual reality looking at this and the political debates that have been going on do you think politicians exaggerate the threats to an existential level for political gain? Well, i I think that I think that that the politicians in general, you know, they're still they're just trying to solve a problem. I I don't know if 
um, I don't know if it's exaggerated on purpose or if it's exaggerated out of ignorance. Um, I think existential threat sounds scary as a uh, um, bumper sticker term. Um, if I was, you know, seeking election of some kind and I wanted to paint a a, uh, a threat uh, to my voters that I can save them from if only they elect me, then I think existential threat uh, as a phrase, it sounds scary and probably, you know, I can get people to repeat it and say, well, you know, so-and-so said it, said ISIL is an existential threat, and that means it's really, really bad. But, you know, that phrase in general, I don't think it rings true with a lot of the voting public uh, necessarily. Um, And it's just, it's one of the phrases I use at at work a lot is, and my my coworkers do too, we call it um, imprecise shorthand. You know, what does that mean? Existential threat. Okay, that sounds really bad, but what does it mean? I mean, so are people exaggerating it I, 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 and throwing the existential threat label onto things that should not have it? I would say most definitely. Um, is it for political gain? Probably because they're politicians and that's what politicians do. Um, you know, but that could be, you know, the same could be said of any you know, federal government or agency who wants to get their manpower or their budget or their whatever increased by saying that some, by, you know, inflating a threat of some kind. Um, at the end of the day, people are going to do what's in their best interests. And if they can hang that existential threat moniker onto something in order to achieve an end of some kind that's aligned with, aligned with their goals, then uh, I think people are going to do that whenever they can. It's unfortunate, though. On that point, and in your personal opinion, is there a certain value in creating this political environment, which is really based on fear of these existential threats? Well, so it's it's interesting. One part, I don't know if there's an advantage to it, but one part I was not able to put in the piece on real clear defense that I wanted to touch on, but once I started to write it out, um, it just didn't. It would have made the article much much longer, which was the idea of. You know, in my piece specifically, I focus on an existential threat as represented by a, you know, foreign power of some kind or a foreign group, a group foreign to the U.S. And that they and that they represent an existential threat based upon a military capability that they have, you know, Russia with a nuclear arsenal and things like that. But but when you look at creating an environment of fear you know, and if you look at the way I spoke to existential threat, you know, specifically um, uh, focus on changing another group's values and the way it it it, it governs itself. Um, you know, since nine eleven, some could argue that maybe the U.S. has been its own existential threat. Maybe maybe our own fear has has you know caused us to you know change our lifestyle in the United States. And change our um, you know tolerance of things and create an environment of fear in general, so I think I think if you look at the you know changing our way of life thing, yeah, there's a certain amount that we have changed uh, into the United States. We have changed ourselves you know based upon our reactions to threats now obviously, the attacks on nine eleven were absolutely horrible, um, but we you know, as we move on, there has to eventually be a time where we look at, you know, if if all the legislation and all the capabilities and all the political things and all the 
military actions that we've taken since 9-11 is us, you know, going from inaction to extreme action. And somewhere between those extremes, there has to be a good, um, you know, middle ground of, you know, non-emotional logic-based threat assessment you know, based upon research and modeling and, and all types of very, very smart people. And then our, our legislation and our government and our executive branch and judicial branch, legislative branch have to work together to address that in a way that does not continue to create an environment of fear because that just, that just, I don't think that helps us at all. And considering the current environment and looking at the debates again, we do have a very big environment of fear, at least when you watch the debates and, and you watch the issues that are coming up. A lot of things seem very fear-based, and and the media and the speakers and those watching seem to be feeding on this. What are your thoughts on this, considering the article you wrote and the ideas in it? I um, I don't agree with it. I think... Uh, I think unfortunately it's like it's like uh you know it's almost like reality TV. Um unfortunately folk, folks are not necessarily tuning in for the you know to see their candidate you know speak to their policy position on an issue that a, that a potential voter values instead they're tuning in to kind of watch the circus or they're turning into um uh, they, they tune in and they allow themselves to be kind of sucked into the uh, the show, uh, which is which is just not a good thing. I think, I think, but at the same time, it's it's interesting because I think if a if a political candidate, you know, stood up in front of anybody and said, you know what, ISIL, not really worried about them as an existential threat. They're not gonna they're not gonna you know jump on boats and drive across the Atlantic and, and, you know, and land on the beach and take over our country. They're just not. So everybody needs to calm down. You know, that would, I don't necessarily think that that is, uh, that is something that if somebody said it on a debate that they would survive to the, uh, follow on debate. So I think it's, unfortunately it's a, uh, it's a balance. Um, as I think about this topic, I often wonder, you know, how much do we as humans, are we just wired, hardwired somehow in our genetics to have to have an emergency? We just, we have to have, you know, some drama in our life that we have to respond to. And if it doesn't exist, you know, we're going to have to, you know, um, create it. There is a, a quote that I looked up on the internet the other night, um, and I'm going to butcher the person's name. I think it was Blaise Pascal who said, you know, something, I'm going to paraphrase, something to the effect of all of mankind's troubles revolve around the fact that you know man cannot sit in a room quietly and keep to himself um and and so i kind of think of that a lot when i watch the debates and i and i see everybody kind of doing this and doing that i'm like geez we're just really trying to stir a bunch of things up and create emergencies that can therefore be solved and it's it's interesting that folks seem to need those emergencies i don't understand it myself as you said, it, it's kind of this idea of 
feeding off of it. And whether it's an emergency or a threat of some sort, it, it gets people riled up. And when you get people riled up, you get emotions and emotions get attached to candidates and candidates then get elected. <laughs> it's an interesting it's an interesting process. <laughs> One thing, and, and you know, and those emotional responses get hardwired into the brain. You know, Very so if so. so if as a candidate, you know, I can produce in the in the TV watching audience at home on you know an adrenaline dump or a you know a spike of emotion in in some way, and then I can tie an uh, you know an an, an audio based bumper sticker slogan uh, to that. And that you know, to that physiological reaction, that when the person goes to the voting booth, they're going to recall that. You know, it's going to be uh, going to be in their head. So, moving on to as you were saying earlier, logical thinking and logical analysis. When in history have we seen a real existential threat? So. I kind of I focus a lot of my writing um, post you know what kind of World War II to the present and uh, I think presently kind of the real existential threat that we see you know is really Germany excuse me not is really not Germany I'm I'm thinking World War II is uh, Russia you know and it's mostly based upon the nuclear arsenal that's really the only existential threat that we have today um, if you look at history and I've been having to study a lot of World War II history recently. Um, there was a, you know, when World War II first started and the U.S. had not entered yet, there was a memorandum written by the Chief of Naval Operations called the Plan Dog Memorandum. And it is, and you can download it on the internet. It's all over the place if you want to look it up, Plan Dog. And um, I believe it was Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Stark who wrote it. And that really outlined kind of what, what, um, the U.S. did in World War II, which they gen- generally referred to as Germany first. We're going to beat, focus on beating Germany first, and then we're going to attack Japan. And the 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 memo itself outlines what happens if the U.S. goes in, and what happens if the U.S. does not, what happens if the U.S. takes all these various steps. And it's interesting to note that Admiral Stark said, you know, if we, if we sit this out, Germany, you know, will eventually, in his in his you know, estimate, be interested in coming towards the U.S. and towards South, Central, and South America from, you know, across the Atlantic. And so, you know, it was, it was interesting to see that this was even before the nuclear threats really started to come out, that uh, kind of pre-World War II, you, you know, at least a few, one person in the U.S. assessed that eventually Germany could become a threat to the United States. And then um, so historically, I, I really I kind of look at that though. That's just based upon one memorandum written by one person, and today we're really looking at uh, Russia. I'm looking at Russia. What are your thoughts on that? When you say today we're looking at Russia, could you elaborate on that? Uh, well, I would say they definitely have the capability if they wanted to, but uh, to. Uh, to you know, permanently change the U.S. and the way we do things, but but at the same time, um, we we have the capability to permanently change the way they do a lot of things as well. <laughs> so I think I think those two uh, those two existential threats, you know, um, uh, keep themselves in check to a certain you know uh, degree. In the in the Cold War, they talked about mutually assured destruction. I don't know whether it's, today we we would call it a uh, mutual existential threats or something. Um, 
I made one note in the in the in the last kind of couple sentences of my piece that I wrote on Real Clear Defense, where I said, you know, the U.S. sometimes thinks about who is an existential threat to us, um, but because of the military and economic, uh, you know, power that we have in the U.S., we are pretty much an existential threat to the vast majority of the rest of the world. So, um, <laughs> you know. It's interesting to think that you know, kind of, while the U.S. and the uh, in the current national security strategy talks about how the United States is the underwriter of security um, throughout the world. So it's interesting to think of that, you know, from a standpoint of one country. You know, one country may be view us as as the underwriter of security, but another country may view us as their existential threat. And so, you know, that needs to be. That's kind of a an undercurrent, I would suggest, is always present in uh, international international relations, is that we are, you know, to the rest of the world, at least potential-wise, possibly not, you know, based upon our will and our national character and things like that, but we have the potential to be almost anybody's existential threat. If we're an existential threat, how should we deal with other countries being a threat? Because as you said, we're a threat to them. So having that status puts you in a different ballgame. And by being on that different level, it needs to be dealt with in a different way. So how should we deal with other countries knowing that we are a threat to them? I mean, I think, I think the, the biggest thing, you know, from a, from a U.S. point of view is that we need to try to, as best we can, you know, maintain our, uh, I could go into a lot of words about our, you know, national character and things like that, but try to maintain as best we can the idea that and this is this is a broad phrase, but that the US has the, you know, is trying to be uh that underwriter of security. We're trying to be the, you know, good guys if if that's even an applicable phrase anymore. Um so I, I wouldn't want to go in to negotiate something with another country and immediately walk in and be like, I have the military power to do this. I have the economic power to do that. And, uh, I can, you know, do this and this and that. Okay. Now this is what I want. You know, I think that the U S capabilities are, um, you know, they're going to be in the minds of whoever we're talking with. So we don't necessarily need to remind them of that. Um, so I, I just, I think it's, I think we really need to move forward and talk to others, you know, in a culturally appropriate, very careful m- manner um and not overstate and not be seen as a uh you know the global bully which, you know, we we could have the capability to be though that is not the, you know, at least not my preference for how we should uh do, do things. I want to quote something from your article, and it really puts the idea of an existential threat in easy terms to think of, and and I would like to discuss it more. And you said, today, a truly existential threat to the United States would entail another country being able to permanently take away its freedom and change its democratic form of government. Now, that's a big statement, and as you said earlier, a country needs to have a lot of power, a lot of things behind it to be able to do that, especially with a country like the United States, which is 
very stable compared to other countries in the world. So let's discuss this. Yeah, so if uh, I, I tried to I tried to you know write this in a way that would quantify it to a reader, you know. So when you talk about the the uh, phrase existential threat, and I you know kind of broadly defined it as being able to permanently change another group's values and the way it uh, you know governs itself. If if you look at existential threat as the idea of a threat to existence, well, what what constitutes the United States existing. And to me, the existence of the United States is, you know, based upon freedom and a democratic form of, you know, government. Those are kind of the two very core things, right, that are the exist that makes make the United States exist in its present form. So if something was an existential threat, it would be able to take those away, um, regardless of what anybody in the U.S. wanted to say or do about it. So, you know, with that as a basis, when I look at it, you know, what's the likelihood of this happening today? I think it's, you know, very, very low um, with 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 Russia generally being the, the one that could do this. Um, it would have to sacrifice itself in the process. You know, it's going to go back to that kind of, you know, 1980s, you know, war games film scenario where the two nuclear arsenals are passing each other in the air. And then you, what you end up with is Russia and the U.S. kind of, you know, fighting over what's left after that. So obviously I don't think that's that would uh, – has a high likelihood of happening. But at the end of the day, it, it, it would entail, you know, some other country or group, you know, imposing upon us their form of government – and their idea of how our citizens should uh, should behave, and they would likely have to do that, you know, by force. Because I don't think we would choose on our own to abandon that. Because, you know, I believe that one of the reasons that the United States was is been able to do what it can do since its inception is because, you know, kind of mankind in general reaches its you know greatest potential in a freedom and democratic, you know, based society because people um, can pursue their interests and uh, really reach the height of their potential. And you mentioned Russia a lot as a potential country that could produce an existential threat. Are there any other countries that you could say were on the horizon of potentially being capable of this? And also, does nuclear capability give someone an upper hand as an existential threat to the United States? Yeah, so I think a lot of people after Russia, you know, a lot of people point point to China, but I still, but when you look at what China has as far as nuclear capability and just physically how far they would have to go to reach the continental United States. Um, and the fact that they could probably, through financial, you know, dealings, achieve their end state anyway, rather than having to do it with a, a gun in their hand, you know, um, China, you know, could be that maybe if they wanted to, but I don't think it's uh, as likely. As far as the nuclear piece, um, I think I think that's really key because uh, the idea of, and I'll just use kind of a strategy catchphrase, you know, um, 
uh, imposing costs that uh, uh, another enemy cannot, you know, endure. Imposing, uh, I think, the unbearable cost or something like that. And, um, you know, the same thing is, is if is if Russia wanted to physically put troops on U.S. soil to to change us. Um, you know, it's it's there's a long way to travel. You know, and once folks. Uh, get here there's going to be a lot of thing you know a lot of fighting that would have to happen so i just i don't see you know amphibious vehicles suddenly rolling up to virginia beach one day and folks jumping out i think there'd be a lot of things that has to happen between here and there and um and nuclear capability would would come into play likely in a in a you know massive way to kind of Put a twist on this discussion. We've been talking about existential threats coming from foreign countries. What about the concept of potentially it coming from within the U.S. in some way? What kind of scenario will we be looking at for something like that to happen? Yeah, so it, it, I was actually had this exact conversation the other day with somebody about about this exact article where you know if you if you look at you know if you if you talk about taking away freedom and changing democratic form of government well the tools to do that are already present here in the US and it's called exactly, congress yeah. right yeah. it's called congress so so you know it would be it would be interesting and that kind of goes back to what I what, what we spoke of earlier when we talk about fear fear generating politicians you know and i often wonder if we had you know if we had another 911 today um, how far to the extreme could the security apparatus um, and all the laws that underpin their authority and all the appropriations, you know, money that funds that security apparatus, how far could that be pushed? Um, because, uh, as f- you know, from a political warfare standpoint, um, you could definitely maybe not take away freedom, you know, broad brush all of it, but you could chip away at it over time, um, changing the democratic form of government yeah you may not be able to take it away but you could chip away at it over time probably a very long time um so yeah all the tools i mean we could have and we could you know we could have those two big things changed um within and that's you know the great thing about our system and kind of a scary thing about our system as well and as you said it it is scary if potentially something like that would happen and it very much could change the fabric of this country. And on the other hand, things could stay the same as they are. Um, it's one of those scenarios of what ifs, I guess. Once again, it's on the fear tactic level of this could happen. And oh my goodness, what are you going to do if it does? <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the elections go over the next, you know, six to nine months or whatever and see, and see, you know, what comes out at the, at, at the other end, because I, you know, as I'm sure you would agree with me, there's um, probably going to be some, you know, I don't know, some change of some kind coming uh, starting in January of 2017. But we'll just have to see who is at the uh, who's who's driving it. Very much so. And, and I'm going to quote my mom here. The one thing she always used to tell me and still tells me is the one thing in life you can expect is change. So <laughs> you get, get that nice mother reality check going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Being, uh, being uh, comfortable with that is key. I know you listen to the show and um, 
you're a guest finally, which is great. We've been wanting to have you on. As you probably know, we sometimes like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch on something that we haven't touched on at the end of the talk, or if there's something that you want to add to this topic, we like to hand over the floor. So I will do that and hand over the floor to you. I would uh, I would just encourage everyone as they continue to watch all the political debates to um, as much as you can on your own do as much research uh, into the security issues that are discussed because you know just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true just because a political candidate says it does not mean it's true and uh, and just you know peel back those layers of those issues as often as you can. And I think most times you people will see uh, it's not as bad as we think it is. And I especially think today with all of the Twitter and Facebook and social media and things, um, I, don't, I don't. I always wonder if we had had all this social media stuff in the fifties. Um, there'd probably be you know similar bad things going on. It's just now you hear about it all the time simply because the technology exists to enable you to do so. So. Um, while I'm, a, I think I'm a realist based upon my experiences in life. I, you know, I still don't think things are as bad as uh, every everyone makes it out to be. So, if you see an issue, please do some research on your own and uh, make your own assessment. And those are very, very wise words to end the show with. So, thank you for coming on the show, Phil. We will definitely post a link to the article. That's on Real Clear Defense, so you can read and think about the topic for yourselves. But once again, thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast, Phil. Okay, thank you so much.